So back to this evening. I'd like to introduce our guest, Charles Trevelyan. Charles, welcome. I'm told I'm wired up. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. If not, I will speak up. Anyway, to explain who I am, my name is Charles Turin, and I'm chairman of the Bugatti-Owners Club, which is a punishment for five years. I've done six, so obviously my first five I haven't performed quite well enough. Uh, but anyway, that's who I am. I was in the army for about 25 years in an armoured regiment in Germany. Thereafter, I was with a motor caravan firm called Auto Sleepers. Anyone heard of auto sleeper motor caravans? Yes. Those who have, that was started by my mother, no less, so that's not a But before all the preamble about my mother, thank you very much to you all for your hospitality, for supper, for looking after Andrew and myself so well, and it's very nice to be here, and I'm deeply honoured to tread the portals of Brooklands. I do have a car that raced at Brooklands in the 1930s, and I will tell you about that later, providing you stick it to the end. So, anyway... I never ever thought I'd be giving a talk about my mother, not least that until her death in 1986, all she ever did was smoke cigarettes, grow tomatoes and spinach, and brought beans, and very rarely talked about her exploits of motor cars. But only latterly did I get to know what she was up to, and she filled in a few gaps, and I will tell you about those tonight. Now, after all, who at the age of 24, my mother was 24 at the time, would ever think of entering the Le Mans 24-hour race, not least competing against such esteemed drivers as Pierre Levey, Raymond Sommer, the Italian ace Biondetti, and Tasso Matheson, and many more. Age 24, so that was quite something for a young girl in that era. She'd never raced before, and she'd never raced since. And I will try and fill in the story of how she became involved. My mother was born on the 6th of January, 1913, she was prudence forcing, but actually her parents wanted her to be called Patience. But the vicar was slightly deaf, mistook Patience for Prudence, and that's how my mother became Prudence, and that is absolutely true. Her parents were not car-minded at all. Her father was a well-established Sheffield solicitor, and her grandmother, her mother, my grandmother, I would class as a good egg. She was a regular churchgoer, knew most hymns off by heart, made me learn the Apostles' Creed when I was nine, knew all the prayers and was rarely good on data chains, but she had no interest in cars. So that was my parents, that was my mother's parents. But my mother's mother, Granny Rachel, was quite into American cars. She couldn't change gear. She never ever grasped the skills of double D clutching. And so, therefore, she thought it was best to buy a good, sturdy American car with a big V8 engine or more that she didn't need to change gear. So, she went to the motor show back in the early 1930s to the stand of the American importers who were called Lentrum and Hartman. Some of you might have heard of Lentrum and Hartman. And she eyed up a car she wanted. It was either a Buick or Packard. She always wanted those. And that was because of a good torquey engine. That was her for the future. She always bought her cars solely on appearance. She had no mechanical knowledge at all. If they looked right, the car was right. And so off she went, ordered them at the motor show, this wonderful car that was duly delivered to her home in Derbyshire. But Granny Rachel said it didn't look right, it wasn't the one she ordered, so Ledrum and Hartman had to take it back. 
They'd actually delivered a Buick, but Granny really wanted a Packard, and so the Packard duly arrived. And she was so hopeless about cars that the air cleaner on the top of the engine was a large chromium disc, and she said not a word of a lie to my mother, darling, what a wonderful place to keep my sandwiches. So you can imagine, Granny Rachel was a pretty dead loss on cars. Anyway, ultimately she had the Packard, it looked right. Now one day, Granny Rachel went to Sheffield, uh, having recently taken delivery of the Packard to go shopping. That was simple enough in itself. But when she was in Sheffield, she T-boned sideways on a sunshine laundry van. Granny's brand new Packard, she'd only had it for a few months, was wedged solidly with a sunshine laundry van. Granny was terribly upset, burst into tears, hailed a taxi and went home. She was summoned by the Manchester Court for leaving the scene of an accident. <laughs> so, lividly, she, having been home, because she always had tea at half past four, the Packard's registration number was T430, because she always had tea at half past four. So T430, she left the scene of the accident, went home in floods of tears, and was summoned to the Magistrate's Court. Well, it so happened that the Magistrate was her godson, Miles Stevenson, and Miles fined Granny five pounds for leaving the scene of an accident. Whereas Granny Rachel, who was as steadfast as they come, banged a crocodile handbag on the table in front of her and said, damn you, Miles, damn you, I'm cutting you out of my will. <laughs> Whereupon, Miles Stevenson, Miles, the, grand, the, the godson, find her an additional ten pounds of contempt of court. <laughs> Miles never spoke to Granny Rachel again. Granny Rachel never spoke to Miles. She left Miles nothing in her will, and that was the end of the godson relationship. <laughs> so, where on earth does my mother's love of cars stem from? Her uncle, I tell you. Her uncle was Percy Fawcett, who was the managing director of James Dixon and Sons. James Dixon and Sons were silversmiths in Sheffield. And obviously in the heyday of silver, being the managing director James Dixon and son, my mother's uncle Percy Fawcett was able to indulge upon whatever hobbies he liked. He was very keen on fishing, very keen on shooting, and very keen on motor cars. Now Uncle Percy, he was an avid motor enthusiast, and to set the scene a little bit, and I move on one, he had at one time, altogether he had seven Bugattis, <coughs> at one time he had four. Now, from the left to the right, that's a Type 49, a Type 44, a Go 37 was a 46S, only two were imported into the country, and the one on the right belonged to Percy Fawcett's son, Alfred. He had two children, he had Enid and Alfred. Enid, I will tell you, was the star of Uncle Percy's <coughs> life, Alfred was merely the son. Alfred only ever had the pressure, and we'll come on to what Enid had later. Now, Alfred's little pressure, WT6031, is shown here, uh, with Alfred sitting on it. It was a Type 22 Bugatti. It had a twin plug block, therefore, obviously, eight, um, uh, eight plugs, uh, twin magnetos, and uh, it's a car that Alfred had till 1955, and he sold it with much regret to buy Bristol 406, he sold it to a chap in America called Douglas Webb, and that little pressure still exists. The other side of the pressure is BRB 800, which is another faucet car that I come to in a minute, and that was a Type 57 with a faucet body. 
So two of their cars. Now, the reason I show you the engine of this is that I said a minute ago that Percy Fawcett, he had a, Percy Fawcett had a daughter and a son. Enid, his daughter, was clearly his favourite. And what Enid said went. And Enid was rarely spoiled. Spoiled to the extent that she was given a Type 57 Bugatti chassis, and this is it, delivered direct from Molsheim, prior to going to the coach builders by James Young. And that, if I go back one, which I press too much, that car was a 21st birthday present to Enid Fawcett. What a wonderful present to have. And for those of you who are interested enough, there is the Fawcett photograph album there, and it's opened at the page, and it shows this car and more photographs in shattered form, and it says, my Type 57 Bugatti, a birthday present from Daddy. D-A-D-D-I-E. How touching. <laughs> Anyone been given a 21st birthday present from Bugatti? I rather suspect not. Anyway, over the course of time, the Fawcett's have other cars. This was a Type 44, and the Type 44 they bought second-hand. And it originally had a Harrington body on, but the Harrington saloon body, but they had it rebodied by James Young and into that um, very attractive two-seater open form. Uh, and that car they had for 18 years, and it was a lovely touring car, and they used it really quite extensively. Another car they had um, was on the right, you see, a Type 49, I'll come to in a minute, and on the left, you see Alfred's pressure. And the reason I show you this picture is that Alfred, Percy Fawcett, Alfred and Enid's father, were very into shooting and hunting and everything. And there's a fair amount of game uh, in front of the small deer on the right-hand side, in front of the two Bugattis, and sitting on the right uh, is Enid Fawcett. And so they had really quite a life. And when they came back from shooting in Scotland, it was in those days they could put all the game and everything they've shot on the train, and it was delivered back in a refrigerated carriage uh, to Door Railway <coughs> Station near Sheffield, where it was offloaded and home it went. So they lived quite a stylish life. The next photograph here is a particularly interesting one. This was a Type 49 Bugatti they had. And this is in front of Percy Fawcett's home in Derbyshire. And the reason I show you particularly that Type 49 is that it was bodied by James Young, if I just come over here, when the Fawcett's or anyone in those days ordered a car to be made for them or coached for them, <coughs> that is the James Young artist impression or artist drawing of the Type 49. So Percy Fawcett was given this picture by James Young. Mr. Fawcett, sir, does this car, does this body, does the style suit your needs? You would notice, you would notice if you looked at it in a minute, that on this particular watercolour, the wings are a slightly different shape than what you see there, because Percy Fawcett specified a more cutaway front wing and a more sloping windscreen to the artistic drawing. So that was the first watercolour given to him, the Type 49, by James Young, and that's how, had they, had, that's how they had their cars. Uh, built in those days, and I thought really rather a stylish way. So that is a Type 49 Bugatti. The Type 49 was um, lived alongside this, the Type 46S. 5.3 litres, supercharged, and there were only two uh, imported into the country. Again, 
Joe 37 is still around. It belongs to America, but it actually lives in England. There was a supercharged twin overhead camshaft engine. The supercharger ran at two and a half times engine speed, and it was a real auto tourer. I've been for a ride in a 46S, not that particular one, and I can simply describe it as it was in its day, the Mini Royale, but when you were in it, it picked up its skirts and thundered along the road in the most wonderfully solid, majestic, steadfast manner. And that was the 46S that really was the uh, Petit Royale, and that was the culmination of Bugatti's uh, owned by the Fawcett family. Now, back to Enid's chassis, and I told you about the um, James Young bodywork on it. Uh, but Enid, I mentioned also, uh, had hers bodied by James Young. And that was the chassis she was given for her 21st birthday, bodied uh, Type 57, uh, with a very attractive two-seater drop-head coachwork by James Young outside her parents' home in Derbyshire. Now, Enid, I said, was extremely spoilt, and she was the apple of her father's eye. So, Percy Fawcett gave Enid, and we've got it here to show you, and I've got it on the table over there, this bespoke Bugatti watch. And if you look, it's in the shape of the Bugatti radiator. At the bottom in diamonds, it's BOC for Bugatti Owners Club. The winder at the top, above the rubik, which represents the Bugatti badge on a radiator, and this little winder above it. And that was given to Enid as also a 21st birthday present. Now that particular watch has in itself quite a story. Enid wasn't averse with her friends to slipping down to Monte Carlo and Monaco, obviously with the eye on the gambling dens down there, I would imagine. And in her Type 57, when I go show you, uh, she and a friend, but not, her, not my mother, drove down to Monaco, and on the way back, they stopped prior to reaching the ferry at Calais, about 50 kilometres south of Calais, to have a picnic. When they arrived at Calais, and Enid was in the Type 57, the photograph I showed you prior to the watch, <coughs> when they arrived at Calais, she found her watch was missing. The watch had come off her wrist. She was mortified. So she turned round the Bugatti, drove 50 kilometres back, or thereabouts, to where they'd had a picnic, and found the watch in the grass and retrieve the watch. The watch then had a further adventure, because dear Enid, in the latter years of her life, suffered from dementia, and she ended up in a nursing home, and sadly she passed away in 1967. When she passed away, my aunt went to clear out her room in the nursing home, and by her bed there was a waste paper basket. So Peggy, my aunt, upturned the waste paper basket and put her all in a black bin liner, and noticed one tissue was rather more heavy, so we're heading than the others. And Enid had put the watch in a tissue, and luckily my aunt realised that the heavier tissue on going into the bin liner had got something in it, and that was Enid's watch. So it had two adventures in its life, and it was ultimately given to me by Alfred before he died, and I would like to think now that it's in good hands. So you can see now a little bit of link between motor cars on my mother's uncle's side and my mother, although my mother's parents uh, were not motor car minded at all. Going back to motor cars, another nice shot there of Percy Fawcett. So he now comes on the scene. He was a managing director, as I said, of James Dixon and Son, and again with another fair amount of game uh, sitting in front of the Bugattis, uh, and what a very pleasant 
was Percy Fawcett, Edith's father and Alfred's father, who presented the Bugattionis Club the Percy Fawcett Cup, which is awarded every year for the best Grand Prix Bugatti, the Bugattionis Club Concours d'Elegance, that takes place at Prescott this coming weekend. It's a wonderful, made by James Dixon and Oxley, trophy, uh, awarded and much treasured by the club, and that shows the link of the um, enjoyment he had out of the club, and indeed what the club, uh, the esteem the club held with him in those days. So, my mother, living fairly close to Percy Fawcett, uh, inherited the love of cars from that side of the family. Because Percy Fawcett was very friendly with Malcolm Campbell, who was a Bugatti agent in London. Colonel Giles, who you would know, some of you started the Bugatti Owners Club, Colonel and Eric Giles. Lindsay Eccles, Arthur Barron, and they all used to come and stay with my mother's uncle. Never with my mother's parents, they weren't carry at all. So that's really how my mother got involved in cars and Bugattis in the early days. Now, in 1935, when my mother was 22, she attended many Bugatti rallies, and you will see here a very early Bugatti rally. This was in, I think, 1937, uh, in the middle of which is Alfred's treasure. On the left, OPJ2, uh, that was at my 50 belonging to Colonel Giles. The Bugatti on the right, I don't know. But my mother got really involved with the Bugatti Arts Club through Uncle Percy, and that's how she came to be involved in Bugatti's go back in a minute. Right. Now my mother had an elder sister, Peggy, and Peggy, elder by about three years, had the Wolseley Hornet. Dreadfully slow car, and my mother and Peggy spent many hours running in the Wolseley Hornet, never exceeding 40 miles an hour for the first 500 miles. And when the odometer clicked 500 miles, my mother said to Peggy, go on darling, put your foot down. Peggy put her foot down, and being a Worsley Hornet, nothing much happened. So they both burst into tears, went home for tea, and that was the end of Peggy's venture with the Worsley Hornet. So my mother really kept going. In her early 20s, my mother went to Genoa in Italy, having been to a finishing school in Switzerland, and she became quite a proficient skier. She was a bit of a girl about town, I reckon, by this stage. And in Genoa, my mother, Prudence, went to stay with Count Theo Rossi de Montalara, and he was the joint owner of the Martini Rossi Drinks Company. So that looked pretty good. Now, if she'd married him, I'd have been tall, tan, good-looking. We'll <laughs> come to that in a minute. She didn't. So, uh, Rossi, and he was known as Giacomo, my mother called him Giacomo, uh, was the indoor, inshore, water speed champion of Italy. And that was Giacomo in the boat he called the Crab uh, on one of his ventures. And my mother and he obviously became very fond of each other, and my mother became engaged. Wonderful. He was a Catholic. My mother was not. Granny Rachel, who was so forceful, put her foot down and said, under no circumstances are you to marry Giacomo. You are to come home immediately. And so my poor mother, saddened and heartbroken, had to come home. She was not allowed to marry Giacomo, the love of her life, hence me not being tall, dark and handsome. <laughs> anyway, in the early 20s, my mother, through her various contacts uh, that she'd made in Italy, particularly in Genoa, got quite a shine to Alfa Romeo's. She raced once or twice in Italy, 
1750 Zagato, and she raced also an HC Alpha. And she really quite fancied Alfa Romeo's. Bugatti's rather took the back seat. Alfa's in her book with a star at the time. So, um, it was before the days of Thompson and Taylor of Brooklyn's, namely here, and my mother, or probably in parallel with them, imported one or two Alphas into this country. In fact, she imported eight, five 1750s and three 8Cs. And she found this a real winner. She made a lot of money until HM Custom in Excise came knocking on my mother's door saying, excuse me, madam, but where is the duty payable on these cars you imported? Oh, said my mother in a flamboyant way, I have no idea about this duty business, I just imported them and sold them to make a bit of money. And so my mother was not flavour of the day with HM's customs and excise. And she was about to be summoned to court and things were looking a bit sticky. Granny Rachel threw a fit. My mother's father, the solicitor, it was above his legal powers to do anything. But very luckily, my mother's uncle was Lord Hodgson, who was the Lord Chief Justice of Appeal. <laughs> he said, don't worry, Prudence, I'll get you off. And in those days he did, <laughs> providing my mother stopped importing Alfa Romeo's. And so that was a close shave, a rather irresponsible thing. But my mother always said, and I love you, Gattis, dearly, my mother's always said, she said, darling, Alphas are far better cars than Bugatti's. Who better to judge than that? Anyway, so that's my mother. One of the first cars she imported was this one, DLM3, which is a, a fairly standard looking, low 1750 with a not a very imaginative body on. Um, but anyway, uh, that was for one. And then um, she had that car, she needed to sell it, and she wasn't really able, having advertised it privately, to find anyone to buy it. And this is where her link with Lance Pedro Brune of Lance, uh, Lance Pedro Brune of Winter Garden Garages came in. Um, because she knew various people, including Lance Pedro Brune of Winter Garden Garages. And Lance said to my mother, he said, Look, Prudence, you know, you are in a bit of trouble. You've got this money to pay for the HM custom and exercise, so we better sell your car for you. So my mother put DLF 3 up for sale through Winter Garden Garages of Lance Pedro Brune. And uh, it was ultimately sold, and my mother was able to repay the HM Custom excise, and then all was well. It was a pretty close shave with a fairly unfortunate incident in her life. Now, in 1937, my mother was offered a seat for the Le Mans 24-hour race on the Duke of Kent's private aircraft at De Havilland Rapide. Now, how she was offered the seat, I know not. How she waggled her way onto the aircraft, I know not. But anyway, in 1937, at the age of 23, she went to the Le Mans 24 race in the De Havilland Rapide and was really quite taken by it. She liked the noise, she said, she liked the smell, she liked the ambience, she thought, well, if they can race cars, I can. She didn't have an RAC competition's license or anything in those days, but she set her heart on racing in the Le Mans 24 race. And it was here that Lance Prado Brune of Winter Garden Garages came in. Now, at that time, Lance Prado Brune um, was the agent for Aston Martins. And Astons weren't selling particularly well, so he switched from Aston Martins, as some of you will know this, uh, to being the concessionaire for Morgans. And he had two or three Morgans in stock, early Climax engine Morgans, you know, flat rad Morgans of 1938. And, and, and Lance had one of those. And that 
was what my mother felt uh, would be suitable. Oh, just, I, I have pressed the right button. That was another alpha she had, a rather nice one, with um, her father, I believe, DIY or it or rather more stylish looking machine. So there were. Anyway, Morgan's it was. And last bit of room said to my mother, look, BMP 370, I will prepare it for you for Lamar, and all you have to do is to get your competition license. Well, my mother applied for the Automobile Club to the West, paid 2,500 French francs, entry fee, got the necessary competition's license, and she was ready to go. Now, she had the promise of the car from Lance Prideau Brew. Uh, that is her in the car at her home in Derbyshire, more of that than on. And she was accompanied by her co-driver, who was Geoffrey White. Geoffrey White was a sales manager of Winter Garden Garages. So my mother was the, the, the first driver, and Geoffrey White was her co-driver uh, for the Le Mans 24 hour race. Uh, they were assisted by Dick Anthony. Some of you might know of the name Dick Anthony. He was a service manager at the Winter Garden Garages in High Hoban. So that was really the team of three, supported financially by Lance Bridget Broom. And my mother, quite how, knew Lord Wakefield. It's awfully names dropping this, but she did. <laughs> None of us, you know, I don't know Richard Branson and all these people now, but she seemed to know Lord Wakefield. And Lord Wakefield took quite a shine to my mother and said, look, I will sponsor you for petrol and oil and lubricants. So she got a little bit of sponsorship on the way. So Lord Wakefield and last bit of food were really um, key to her success. So that is um, Dick Anthony peddling the engine of the Morgan. Uh, a little bit more peddling the Morgan for the race. They took off the BMP 370 number plates and obviously preparing it to give the final polish and cut change, I would imagine, before the race itself. They drove to and fro to the Le Mans 24 hour race, just to digress a little bit. Uh, the Tuli to the Donner on the right is still owned by a person called Philip Sowell, who's been in touch with me, but I think he's probably sold it on. And my mother is the one standing with her hands in her pockets uh, with the helmet on, and that was a helmet in which she wore when she raced them on. The Morgan is just behind the Lavonda, so the Tuli to the Lavonda, the mother, um, large bit of broom, uh, and, and the other two girls, I don't know who they were, but I think it might be Dick Anthony's wife. Uh, on, on the way to the Mark 24 hour race. The cars were shipped across the channel. Uh, there was no roll-on, roll-off ferries. And they were shipped onto the SS Ford, F-O-R-D-E. There was a converted uh, minesweeper, uh, and it, the, the cars were thus lifted from the Bonda and then the Morgan onto the converted minesweeper uh, prior to setting off for the Mark 24 hour race. A very nice, typical picture, driving down one of these wonderful avenues of trees, uh, BMP 370 pulling along, mother at the wheel, don't know who the other one was, but they love this sight of those trees lining French roads as they do. So it was all really evocative and actually quite good fun as it all. They stayed when they were in the Le Mans at the Hostellerie des And this is where my mother took the photograph, and amongst that group was Casso Matheson uh, and various others, uh, who having pre-race pre briefs, talking drinks, or whatever. The Hostelier Daisy uh, is still there, and that's where the Morgan team stayed for the year my mother raced at the Mall, and for the subsequent year after, when the car also again ran at the Mall, but not with my mother. After the race, um, they kept 
In the race, uh, it burns an exhaust valve, so the exhaust valves need to be um, mended or repaired or replaced or whatever. And I suspect that's what was going on at the time, and home they spent. Now, in the race, which was particularly relevant, uh, my mother was behind Biondetti in the 2-9 elbow. And that is the 2-9 alpha in the pits. And I say my mother was behind it, because that alpha on this near side front wheel through a tread. And a bit of the rubber came off the, through the wing of the alpha and hit my mother on the head. And that is my mother's helmet there. And there is still a little bit of blood on that, my mother's helmet where a bit of rubber from the 2-9 alpha came and hit my mother on the head. Uh, some of it went off the goggles, the crack on the goggles, uh, and the other bit uh, cut her head. But she kept going anyway. But that was a nice link with Biondetti's 2-9 Alpha, which didn't finish, but my mother did finish 13, so she'd done pretty well. Anyway, as I said, in the latter part of the race, the Morgan had to slow down due to a burnt exhaust valve. And my mother also said that a radiator bracket came loose, so she was losing, losing coolant. So she had to slow, but she did finish the race, and she finished 13th. She was delighted. She won, I think, the Rudge Whitworth trophy, or the car did, and my mother telegrammed Granny Rachel saying, finished 13 out of 45 competitors, success, to which Granny Rachel, who was livid about my mother doing such a dreadful thing as going motor racing, emailed back saying, come home, I'm glad it's over. And that was Granny Rachel's response to a great do by my mother. You will see on the table there, my mother's press uh, booklet, and she's got all the newspaper cuttings. Do have a read of all the, all the tributes uh, that were uh, accorded to her after the Le Mans 24 race. So doubtless, after much celebration, uh, my mother, um, Julie, drove home. Grand Rachel, as I say, was not pleased. There's my mother, easing round the track. I think she averaged about sort of 65, 70 miles an hour, I'm told, with Nick Anthony which is very critical day, and I won't go through all the bits and pieces of the race, suffice to say it was a cracking good effort. After the race, again, the Austenary Daisy, some of the gang, Tessa Matheson, and I don't know who the others are, but some of you might recognise some motor racing dignitaries. But she was awarded this, um, Automobile Club of the West, in the middle, Miss P.M. Fawcett, and you will see on the table there in the middle, and do have a look at it, the self-same award, that was awarded to all the finishers of the Le Mans 24 hour race, not least my mother. So on the table in the middle is the medal that she won, and I thought that was uh, a great achievement. So, my mother drove straight back to Derbyshire in the Morgan, and there she is in the Morgan after the race, uh, and she said to Granny Rachel, I call her Granny Rachel just to underline her steadfastness, she said to Granny Rachel, she said, I would love to buy the Morgan. Granny Rachel said, no one of our class goes motor racing. You brought shame on the family. You have to take the car back immediately to Winter Garden Garages and to stop this foolishness with these cars and settle down and lead a proper life for once. <laughs> and poor, my mother, mummy, I call her, my poor mother was mortified at this. And so she had to sell the Morgan. And that was the last photograph of the Morgan, still with a racing number on, uh, at Stanfield, was the last photograph of her in the Morgan before it had to go back to Winter Garden Garage. 
went to garden garages to be sold. She was not allowed to buy the plants. When she was at Winter Garden Garages, Lance Brady Brune said to my mother, she said, oh, my dear Prudence, what are we to do? He said, well, look, don't bother. He said, I've got a car that really would do for you. And my mother said, Lance, you know, what is this car? He said, well, it's a bit older. It's an Aston Martin. It raced in the 1934 Le Mans 24 hour race. It didn't finish. But this is for sale for £395, and I will give it you for £350. And my mother thought, marvellous. Well, if I can't keep the mortgage, I can at least have an Austrian Martin. <laughs> and so, Lance, as you doesn't have, as doesn't happen these days, said to my mother, Prudence, my dear, borrow the car for ten days, take it home, show it to your mother, she'll surely like it, and then you can have the car for 350 quid. Wonderful, said my mother. So, the car she got, drove home from Granny Rachel, you can imagine what happened. Granny Rachel went apoplectic, told my mother she was not to buy the car at all, to take it back to Winter Garden Garages, very much with her tail between her legs, and she was not to have the arsed about it. And so, there were two cars she'd love to have had, but sadly she couldn't. That self-same arsed and Martin was bought shortly after my mother had had it on an afro, by Lieutenant Colonel Raymond Johnson Ferguson in Dumfrieshire. And Raymond Johnson Ferguson had that car in 1938 until he died in 2005. Raymond was my, happened to be my father's best friend at Oxford, long before my mother had met my father, if you know what I mean. And so Raymond bought that car, unbeknown to my mother, because my mother didn't know who Raymond Johnson Ferguson was. And that's the car that took my father to my parents' wedding. So my mother had had it for 10 days and wasn't allowed to buy it. And then she got a real kick in the you-know-whats when my father arrived at the wedding and the Alstress and Martin that she herself had been unable to buy. However, Raymond loved the car and obviously we got to know Raymond particularly well. And Raymond, when he died, he bequeathed that car to me in his will when he died, free of inheritance tax, on condition that I would never sell it, and if I have no use for it, is to go to a museum. It is LM14, a well-known Alstraston Martin. It raced in the 1934 Le Mans 24-hour race. It didn't finish the race, but it's the only one remaining car with a drill chassis uh, to have been in exactly the same configuration today as it was when it raced in 1934. So that car, in effect, has come home, and a rather touching story. Unbeknown to both parties in the early days, they didn't know, my mother had borrowed it, Raymond bought it, Raymond was my father's best friend, father of my parents' wedding, extreme surprise by my mother, and the Ulster has come home. And it now lives in the garage at home, and we love it dearly, the Ulster Aston Martin. So that is a really nice tale. Now, um, moving on a little bit, um, my parents met, and uh, how did they meet? My father answered the advert for DLM3 from Winter Garden Garages. So not only did he get the 1750 Alpha, but he got my mother as well. <laughs> so that's pretty good. And furthermore, he didn't have to pay for the car, because it was still my mother's. So he got the Alpha free, and my mother thrown in. Or you could put it the other way. <laughs> my mother thrown in and the Alpha free. Anyway, according to my so, my parents um, got engaged in 
1939. They got married on April Fool's Day, 1939. But before they got married, they went to Shopton and took, took quite a shine to that aircraft, this little two-cylinder aircraft, called the Hilson Praga. Probably you've never heard of the Hilson Praga. But it was a little two-seat side-by-side plane, fuel control. And my mother and father jointly thought it would be really rather fun to finish with this car business. No more racing for my mother, and my father had learned to fly on Titan once anyway, to buy the Hilson Praga. So, off to Shopton they went, and my father went up in the Hilson Praga, dual control, and they did a stall or two and some tight turns, and it flew really nicely. And my father said to the owner of the aircraft, you know, I really like this aircraft, I'd rather like to buy it, but before I buy it, would you take my wife to be up in it? So my mother strode over the aircraft, and the aircraft took off, did a few trips around the sky, and then when it was coming into land, it was just about to touch down, when suddenly it sort of reared up, almost stalled, nosedive towards the ground again, reared up and did the most heavy landing on the grass strip of Shopton, quite far down this marked out runway. And my father was livid with the aircraft, over the over the aircraft, and said, you know, what the hell are you doing? You've got my fiancé on board and you've almost killed her. You know, what, what, what are you doing? I'm certainly going to buy your aircraft. The pilot was livid and said it was her fault. You know, she almost caused a crash. And my mother, who was not exactly the greatest aviator, my father said to my mother, what earth has happened? And my mother said, well, well darling, when we were coming to land, this great metal rod came up my skirt. <laughs> Do you And my mother, mm, very suggestive. This great metal rod, you know, with a hand grip on top, and I will explain no more. Whereupon she pushed it forward out of sheer indignation. And again, the rod went back up her skirt. My mother was absolutely livid with the pilot, and that was the, that accounted for this rather strange arrival. So they never did buy the Hilson Prague, really probably just as well. So, on April the 1st, my parents got married. There's my mother, good-looking girl, and uh, they bought, from Harold Bradford, a port to Bentley. My father lived in London, in Onslow Gardens, with his parents, and uh, my mother lived at Dore in Derbyshire. This is the car at Stanfield, where my mother lived. And uh, she was having lunch with her future in-laws, my father's mother and father, and my grandfather, Leslie, who was both boring and mean, but that's enough said of him. He said to my parents, he said, now what have you been doing today? And uh, my mother said, oh, well, we've just been out, Leslie, and we've been um, buying stuff for our bottom drawer. Do you remember in the, the days of expression when you walked, you would be buying stuff for our bottom drawer? And uh, we've ordered a sofa, we've ordered two chairs, uh, we've ordered some sheets and some bath towels and rugs, we've ordered a mat, we've bought a corner for Tanita Bentley, and there was a sudden <laughs> great silence. And that was sort of part of their shopping escapade to buy the corner for Tanita Bentley, on which they went on their honeymoon. So, uh, that was uh, my mother with the Bentley at her house in Derbyshire. Now, with the Bentley, they had um, an Alpha NG5979, a blown 1750, and a little Fiat Coppolino. The 1750 Alpha NG5979 uh, was laterally converted to HC specification and became under the ownership of Ridley. <coughs> 
So if you ever hear of Lord Ridley and an HC alpha, it started as a 6C alpha, uh, and on the left is a little Cleoptopolino. And they had a little Cleoptopolino. Notice how the headlamps are blacked out for use during the war, and the wings have got little white stripes on as they had to. Um, but they had that, and they were amazing. They also had an Austin 7. The Austin 7 my parents had, um, they bought at the same time as Miss England had, had um, been one of these, is it champ, water speed champion, land speed record holders, I think, land speed record holders. So anyway, um, they called the baby Austin miscarriage, which I thought was rather nice. So they had miscarriage, there was a baby Austin that they bought along the same time as Miss England, a uh, nice little tail. Uh, Latterly, my parents were, they remained very, very much in the stars. My father had one of the first Bristol 405s in 1948, 1949. And in that car, he did over 150,000 miles. And um, they, after that, had a really nice DB24 Aston with a 2.6 Vantage engine. And Raymond Johnson Ferguson, the chap I've mentioned with the Ulster Aston Martin, also had a DB24. And my parents, uh, in their DB24, had got better performance with their 2.6 Vantage engine than Raymond had in his DB24, that had got the 3-litre engine. Now, the reason I show you that is my mother, she always said, and she demonstrated for me when I was 13 or 14, she could do a better four-wheel drift in that car than my father. And there was a corner near us, a corner, a downhill right hand to the corner, leading to Toddington Roundabout, which is on the way to Brentford. And uh, my mother used to be able to just set that car up beautifully and just have it sliding in a perfect four-wheel drift around the corner. Amazing car control. And also, she was epically good at double declutching. And she could change here on the DB24 Aston without using the clutch, just by ear, just getting the revs right, and she could just nick it in. So that was really great. However, my parents then went quite the other way. They sold the Aston, they sold the Bristol and bought a minivan. So I was acutely embarrassed because I was at school at the time. And on school sports speech day, parents were allowed to bring their cars and park on the football or the rugger pitches and have picnics. And so I said to my parents, you know, you know could you come with a picnic? Well, they appeared in the minivan. It made me feel rather like Mr. B. You know, I just felt thoroughly uneasy. Because at school, there were two friends of mine. One was Tony Vanderbilt's son. And his dad appeared in the Castle Vega HK500. And there was George White, who owned the Bristol Aeroplane Company. And he appeared in a 405 Bristol with my dear parents with a minivan in the middle. And I felt a real heat of that. And uh, I wasn't particularly keen on that idea at all. So the minivan went to my mother bought in 1961 uh, an Austin Mini, and she realised that it needed to go a bit faster, so she bought from Alexander Engineering at Haddenham a high-compression cylinder head and twin-issue carburetors. And so one evening at home, not a word of an eye, she went to the garage, took the old cylinder head off, put on the high-compression cylinder head from Alexander Engineering, and couldn't tune the two twin-issues to one and a quarter-inch SU carburetors. So she rang up the doctor, who came over immediately with a stethoscope. So my mother, with a stethoscope, could adjust the suck, the suction on the inlet trumpets of the SUs. And she got the carburetion absolutely spot on. And my mother, in the Mini, was quicker than a Mini Cooper. And that's not a word of a lie. So after that, they had my parents still very much into cars. Has the sound gone off? 
No. Uh, they had a CSL lightweight BMW, a 308 GT2 Plus 2 Ferrari, and then latterly, my mother owned a 911 SC Porsche. So cars were really much in my mother's blood. Now, my mother passed away in 1986, leaving behind my brother and myself. And because of my parents' interest in cars, uh, I rather bit the bug. And not only have I got Raymond's LM14, Aston, which I love dearly, um, and the interesting thing about it is that on the dashboard, you know on Aston you have all these rows of switches. The left-hand one is obviously magneto on and off, then fuel pump one and fuel pump two, and then left-hand headlamp and right-hand headlamp, and then a switch for the side lights front, and a switch for the tail light, and then a switch for the generator. And when I asked this, when you, they raced at the mall, to save the load of the engine and on the generator, you could either switch off the dynamo or whatever it is, uh, so the engine gave more power to the rear wheels, but you didn't drain the battery just by you, you, you drained the battery, yes, by less, by using one headlamp, or one headlamp in dusk, and, and the side lights or whatever. So it's got all these wonderful rows of switches. So that's the Alstras model. I've also got a Type 37A Bugatti that I bought um, 35 years ago from a dear lady in Northumberland, and I rang her up and I said, you don't know me from Adam, but would you ever, ever, ever please consider selling your Type 37A Bugatti, which is the four-cylinder supercharged Grand Prix Bugatti, not the eight-cylinder road in Belgium. And she said, yes, my dear. She said, uh, I would be interested in selling it, because she was a widow, you see, and she wanted it to go to a good home. So she said to me, she said, come up and see it. And I said, well, I can't really come up and see it. You're in Northumberland. And she said, well, come up and see it as soon as you can. And I had a job at the Ministry of Defence. So I left a note for my less than happy colonel, who was my boss, saying I had a rather ill aunt in Northumberland <laughs> who I needed to go and see immediately, and I wouldn't be in on Monday or Tuesday. So hesitantly, I got a train, and I said to Mr. Strumsey, who had the Bugatti, I said, um, how will I recognise you at Morford Station? And she said, oh, my dear, she said, I'll be in a Volvo. I said, I think everyone in Morford has got Volvos. And she said, no, it's U45, the registration. And she said, come and see the Bugatti. Well, there she was. She took me home, gave me lunch, showed me the Bugatti, and I said, I would dearly love to buy this Bugatti from you. She said, all I need, all I want is the assurance it will never be sold. The assurance that you, me, will always keep in touch with me until I pass on. Um, and you'll always let me know how you're getting on. So I said, yes, what in exchange? She said, I want enough money to redo my kitchen. And I said, well, that's perfect. And so um, she got her kitchen redone, and uh, I kept in touch with her for a long time, until she sadly died. And I only learned latterly that likes of Dan Margulies and Coyce Kensington, they were after that car, and they, you know, they'd offered her two and a half times what I paid for the car to put it in the trade for them to make a bit of money. Anyway, so I've got the, uh, the little um, 37A Bugatti at home. Um, but the Morgan link runs fairly deep, very deep in our family, because here you will see my wife, who is that one there, my first wife. I call her my first wife, she calls me my first husband, I say my first wife just keeps her on edge a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, a pretty good hint. So my first wife, and that is Angela, um, actually before we met with her Morgan, it was a special bill by the Morgan Motor Company, 
Uh, it had originally been ordered by her brother-in-law, a doctor in York, who took up microlighting. He wanted to buy a microlight, so he passed the order. In those days, you had to, you know, several years before you got the car. So in those days, you, um, uh, you pass the order to Angela, and there is Angela, joyful, uh, Ron Astor, with her Morgan. Uh, before we got married, so that must have been about 1987, and it's done only 6,000 miles, because when she became pregnant, she couldn't sit behind, fit behind the wheel, and uh, so we haven't used the Morgan an awful lot, but the Morgan blood still runs in the family, uh, and that is Angela by the Morgan. Now, do feel free to have a look at all the items on there. You will see my mother's press um, cutting book. You will see, and do have a good look, Edith Fawcett's book of all her Bugatti exploits. Uh, you will see the photograph of the Elstrast, and you will see all sorts of things. My mother's goggles, uh, my mother's award, and everything. So, that's me done. That was my mother. I didn't realise, until I put all this together, that she was no ordinary mother. She wasn't. And I just go back to summarise. Where else would anyone, aged 23, go to see the Le Mans 24 race? enter it age 24 and have all the excitement and all the contacts and all the fun and she had a really really good life but then she settled down to being a mother and very very rarely spoke much about it she didn't keep in touch sadly and i know not why with Las de Brun or any of the old gang you know marriage and the children me and my brother uh, took priority um, and so all this has been put together from whatever i've been able to glean but in my book and i hope in yours she was a really very special woman, and I think great credit for her for entering the Le Mans 24 race at such an early age. Long may she be remembered, and thank you very much. Sorry? Did your parents ever buy an aeroplane? 
No, no, they didn't actually. No, it was a great pity. Um, perhaps just as well they did. My father, he had his own moth, not a tiger moth, and that was the one I think. Was the original moth the one with the engine the right way up, wasn't it? And the throttle, it didn't have a throttle, did it? Did it not just magnetos on and off, that sort of thing, I think. But he had his own aircraft, and when my parents um, got engaged, my father, and after the Hilson Private Saga, my father agreed to stop flying, and my mother agreed to stop motor racing. My father did actually drop some bags of flour on my mother's house in Derbyshire um, for a little bit of fun. I'll just tell you a little bit of, does that answer your question? But a little bit about that. On Thursday next week, one of the cars I showed you was um, next to Alfred's car by the roadside, with Alfred sitting on the mudguard, was BRB 800. And that was Enid's Type 57 Corsica body car. That now belongs to a chap in, uh, he's the director of tradition at Bugatti at Molsheim, and his name is Julius Pruter. And I know him quite well through the Bugatti Owners Club of Bugattis. And he and I are meeting this coming Thursday, and we're going in that 57 Corsica body Bugatti that he now owns. And we're going up to the homestead in Hope in Derbyshire, where the car lived with Enid Fawcett in the, 19, in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. I've contacted the owners. They're looking forward enormously to seeing us. And we're going to take back to the homestead the 57 Corsica body Bugatti, BRB 800, the one I showed you, plus the Percy Fawcett Memorial uh, Concourse car, and plus Enid's watch. And we're going to go back up there, so the car, the cup, and the watch goes back to where it all started. And that'll be a rather nice touch, I felt. And we're going to do that next Thursday. So we keep in touch with each other. We do that in world. I digress. Yeah. No, not at all. Mm. Um, another question, maybe. Yes, My nightmare would be not to be able to answer them. <laughs> you know, what's a firing order of a morgue or something? <laughs> With your family's connection to Bugatti and Prescott, did your mother ever compete at Prescott? My mother never competed at Prescott. She never competed at Brooklands. She never competed anywhere, at any time, in any car, other than the Le Mans 24 hour race, which was amazing. So, you raced the Alphas in Italy? Uh, in Italy. I never, I never quite knew where she'd raced the Alphas in Italy or how well she did. Because Giacomo went off the scene and uh, my mother obviously lost contact with him. So I never discussed her motor racing exploits, such as I'm talking with you, because it never occurred to me she'd had such an unusual life. It's not, you know, I always thought, you know, interesting she went motor racing, thought no more about it. But only when I pieced all this together did I realise she had sort of quite a special time. So I don't know where she raced in Italy or when. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. One more, perhaps. Okay. Thank can you. I tell you one more? Can I tell you? Can I tell you a story, not linked with my mother, but it's a story I was going to tell you at the beginning. Okay. Do you want to hear a tale? Yes. Okay. And this is the tale. I had a relation. Um, called Humphrey Trevelyan, who was a British, he was appointed as a British ambassador in Moscow. And he'd just been the British High Commissioner in Aden, and he was my father's great uncle, I think. Uh, and so we knew him and his wife Mary 
read it quite well, my parents did. And he was appointed at fairly short notice to be the British ambassador in Moscow. When he arrived in Moscow, he was told that one of the first things he would have to do would be to address a group of Soviet diplomats. And he thought, well, they'd be pretty heavy going. So as he could read the Cyrillic alphabet, he thought what he would do would be he and his wife would get in one of the embassy cars with a driver, drive to Moscow, and as he could read the Cyrillic alphabet, to read off a laboratory block, ladies and gentlemen. So at least when he was introduced, so at least when he was introduced, he would be able in Russian to say, ladies and gentlemen, and then to an interpreter, talk to the audience. Anyway, the great evening arrived on day four, and he said he'd never seen such a po-faced, uninterested, grey-haired, grey-suited, grey-complexioned load of Soviet diplomats. You know, his heart dropped. He thought, well, how am I going to manage? But being able to speak Russian, ladies and gentlemen, would break the ice. And so he was introduced by one of his aides called Hugo, and he said, uh, I'd like to introduce this excellent the British ambassador, Sarkis Trevelyan. And Humphrey stood up in front of these po-faced things, and he thought, well, dear me. Anyway, in his very best Russian, he said, ladies and gentlemen, and then the rest to an interpreter. Having said, ladies and gentlemen, they all rolled in the arms with laughter. He'd never seen such a group of people change from the most dour, uninteresting, dull lot to people who just couldn't stop giggling. And he turned to his aide, Hugo, who spoke fluent Russian. He said, what earth have I said to cause all this alacrity? And the aide said, Sir Humphrey, you've just stood up in front of them and you've said, your idols and sit-down retreats, how very pleased I am to be talking to you this evening. <laughs> so that's my, that was my little tale. I mentioned at the beginning, but I tell you at the end.